What's going on, Renaissance family? My name is Jordan. I'm one of the pastors here at Renaissance. Shout out to everybody joining us for our online service. And yo, we're about to hop into today's message. And it's a really interesting time to be in this selected text for today. Uh, I say it's interesting because today we're looking at the plagues in the book of Exodus. And unless you are living under a rock, you know that we are smack dab in the middle of a global pandemic. Now, there tends to be two groups of people with stuff like this. One group tends to kind of, I would say, over-spiritualize things and try to make a direct connection between the pandemic that we're experiencing and the plagues back in Exodus, as if God were unleashing his judgment on the world by uh, allowing us to have the coronavirus. And I would disagree with that for a number of reasons and say that uh, coronavirus and cancer and sickness and illness, they're just a, a very unfortunate reality of what it means to live in a fallen world. Um, but there also is another group of people that tend to dismiss stuff like this in scripture that we're gonna look at today as so distant and so detached from their lives that they have nothing to learn and glean from these stories. And I hope to prove you wrong today uh, as we look at this topic today of what does it mean to be people who follow Jesus? Now, here's what you're gonna get today as we dive into this text, something about your own Christian journey. And here's what that is. The Christian journey, is learning every single day to trust what God says over what you feel. So we're going to hop into this right now. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to receive your word. We ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the older I get, uh, I'm realizing a number of things about me. Number one, I, I think I'm hitting that age where I no longer know what the new current music is, and I'm okay with that. Uh, I don't know the difference between Lil Baby, the Baby, whoever's baby. Uh, I'm just at that stage in life, and it just is what it is. Uh, I also realized that most of my conversations with younger guys uh, usually revolve around relationships that a lot of people are wanting to get into, uh, relationships they want to settle down and get serious. And there's one thread that is probably pretty consistent in a lot of the young guys that I talk to. It's this fear of commitment. It's almost that they feel that once they commit to something, they're going to lose their freedom. Now, in a certain sense, they're right, right? Because in any relationship that you're ever in, you do lose your freedom. It's not a bad thing. It's just the reality of what it means to be in any relationship. Now, I was thinking about the relationships that I have with different people. And in every single one of these relationships, if I wanted to, to flourish and to thrive, I could no longer just do what I want to do. Uh, there's a piece of my freedom, my freedom, my freedom to choose what I want to do, when I want to do and how I want to do it. That goes out the window. Now, just yesterday, my, my brother uh, sent me a text to ask me to help him to move some stuff up a flight of stairs. And if you know me, you, you know that I absolutely... Like, I hate moving with a passion. Uh, so when he asked me to help him move, I said, listen, this is a great bonding experience for you and your eight-year-old son. If he falls under the dresser, it's going to build character in his life. No, I didn't say that. I went to his house and I helped him move, even though I hate it, because we have a mutual relationship. And over the years, my brother has held me down so many times, and I'll certainly want to repay that favor. And if I want that relationship to thrive, there's a bit of freedom that has to go away. Now, I've also experienced a lot of loss of freedom as a dad. Uh, I can remember a couple of weeks ago, waking up a little bit early just to have some peace and quiet. I brewed my coffee, 
I sat down on the couch. I had a nice bagel toasted with some butter on it. I sat down and I hear the footsteps of these little tyrants, I mean kids, walking into the living room with their grubby little hands to take my delicious food and they ruined my vibes completely. Now to be a dad is to, to lose freedom, to just exist and to have a good time to do things on your own pace. Now what's true of being a brother or a husband or a dad is even more true of a relationship with God. That if we want our relationship with God to thrive and to flourish, then it's gonna be a big loss of freedom. Now in losing freedom as a husband, as a dad, as a brother, in some ways, it's not that scary because it's somewhat manageable, right? So technically, nobody was forcing me to help my brother move up a flight of stairs. I could have, and I sometimes do hide food for my kids. Uh, I'll eat ice cream in the bathroom sometimes to be alone. But with God, if God is all-knowing and God is all-powerful, to be in relationship with him means that the loss of freedom with God is that much more. But it's not a bad thing. Because to lose freedom to God is not really losing anything at all. Now, there's a couple of scriptures in the New Testament, and there's one that I've been chewing on since the day I became a Christian. It comes from Luke 9, 23, and it's Jesus talking about what it means to follow him. And part of this is talking about what it means to lose our freedoms in pursuit of him. And here's what Jesus says. Uh, then he said to them all, if anyone wants to follow after me, let them deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. Now, those are very sobering words from Jesus. And there was a, an author named A.W. Tozer who talked about this scripture and about what it means to take up your cross. So if you are a Christian, uh, your decision to follow Jesus was not a decision you made 20 years ago. It's a decision we make every single day with our lives to take up our cross. And here's what A.W. Tozer said about what it means to take up your cross. We are facing only in one direction. We can never turn back and we no longer have plans of our own. You see, people who were carrying crosses, they weren't worried about their plans for Saturday night. They weren't wondering whether or not they turned the oven off. They were only facing in one direction. Their life seemingly was over at that point. Now, what Jesus invites us into is, uh, is something that's life-giving, but it is, make no mistake about it, something that requires us to consciously, deliberately hand over our freedom to him. But the challenge in all of that is that you and I would rather do things our way. I mean, let's be honest. All of us, if we had the choice, we would like to do things our way. Now, today, as we're back in the book of Exodus, we're going to look at a character in scripture that is confronted by God. And God is going to present this guy, Pharaoh, with a demand, telling him what to do. And Pharaoh, for a number of reasons that we're going to dig into today, chooses not to do that. Now, we said this a couple of weeks ago when we talked about Pharaoh. It's really easy for us to distance ourselves from him like we have nothing in common with him and that's not the case. There's so much in our lives that we're going to see in the scripture. And let me catch you all up. Uh, today, we're going to start in Exodus 5. And for the first four chapters of Exodus, what you see is God appoint a guy named Moses to go to this Pharaoh, who was the, the leader of the free world, to tell Pharaoh to let uh, God's people, the Israelites, free from slavery and bondage in Egypt and to free them so that they could worship God on their own. 
Now, Pharaoh, who is enjoying the free labor of the Israelites, is very reluctant to let God's people go. So we pick up here in Exodus 5, and Moses has gone to Pharaoh to tell him what to do. And Pharaoh responds with this question. Who is the Lord that I should obey him by letting Israel go? I don't know the Lord. And besides, I will not let Israel go. Now, Pharaoh is in essence understanding exactly what God is telling him to do through Moses. But everything that Moses is telling Pharaoh from God runs completely counter to his instincts. I think if we were honest with ourselves, we would all identify things in our lives that sometimes we know it's God telling us to do it, and it just runs completely counter to our instincts and to our desires. So the 10 plagues that would come as a result of this interaction between uh, God and Pharaoh are a response to this question that Pharaoh asks, who is the Lord that I should obey him? And then God later does these 10 plagues, and we don't have time to get into each one in the details, but it's really, really fascinating what they all add up to. Now, at this point, it's really important to know that Pharaoh was not an atheist, right? So like Egypt had about 140 gods. They had a God for almost everything. So Pharaoh wasn't saying, uh, he wasn't bothered by the fact that there was a God. He was bothered by, there was a, by the fact that there was a God who was claiming supremacy, that there was a God, not just who existed, but wanted to tell him what to do with his own life. Pharaoh struggled with it because he himself believed that he himself was a God. But you and I struggle with God telling us to do counter instinctual things sometimes for a few other reasons. Now, one of them is something called uh, the, the human condition of, of sin that we have inherited from our earliest four parents, Adam and Eve. And when I say sin, I don't mean a specific behavior that you do or that you don't do. I mean a condition, a, a bend, a nature. See, if you were to rewind earlier to the book of Genesis, when God created uh, our first parents, Adam and Eve, God put them in the garden and said, yo, y'all could go crazy and eat whatever you want. Just don't eat this one tree. The enemy comes to Adam and Eve and, and tempts them by saying, God knows that if you eat it, you'll be just like him. And Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit. Why? Because what they craved in their deep innermost parts was autonomy. Now, in many ways, we have inherited that from Adam and Eve, that deep down inside, whether or not you would admit it, we all want autonomy. We want the ability to choose and direct our lives in the direction we think it should go. Now, years ago, I had a filtration water bottle and on the label, on the box, it said in like big, bold letters, never put anything in here except for water. So a couple of weeks in, I was digging a water bottle and I stopped for some iced coffee and I was like, it can't be that bad. I'll just rinse it out. And I put iced coffee in that filtration water bottle. And from that time on, I could never get that taste out. No matter how much, how many times I rinsed it out, it always had this lingering taste of like really weak coffee and everything I drank. And I ended up just throwing it away. Now, in, in many ways, the sin condition in our lives is just like that. No matter how many times we try to wash ourselves off on our own, there's still this hint, this, this lingering aroma, this, this lingering thing that affects everything about us, including our ability to understand God and what God tells us to do in our lives. Now, that's one reason uh, we struggle because it's our nature. Um, the second reason we struggle 
is something that we see very, very clearly in our day today. We live in what's called a post-truth era. Now, this term was coined a couple of years ago. And in a post-truth era, objective facts are less influential in shaping opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. So in a post-truth era, what really matters is what you believe. I can give you all the facts all day long, and if you don't believe it, if it doesn't feel right, then you can discard it. Not just that, but we judge that as more authentic, more real, more believable, whatever you personally hold to be true. Now, this is very easy to see in them and really hard to see in us. Now, I don't have to spell out who them is for you. Uh, there's a lot of people who very quickly come to mind when I talk about a post-truth era who um, don't listen to objective facts. And you, can, you don't need me to give you examples on that but it's really hard to see in us. Now, here's what I wanna do today. My hope and my prayer is that we would see how resistant you and I are to God's truth in our lives. I wanna do it in three ways. I want us to take a look at our past, our present, and our future. In our past, what are the things that you can't get over? Ask yourself that question. What are the things that you just can't get over? For some people, it is a crippling inability to forgive themselves. And as a pastor, I've talked to so many people who have done so many things in life, um, real serious things that uh, they've been extremely ashamed to tell anybody. And a lot of times when I'm uh, in a meeting with someone or these days on a Zoom call with someone and they're talking about the things that they've done once upon a time, there's a real pain for them about the things that they have done. And here's the danger. A lot of times, it doesn't matter how many scriptures we read about forgiveness, it still doesn't register. The Bible says in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's a very clear scripture. But yet, so many of us struggle to believe exactly what is written in black and white, these objective facts that we see here in scripture. And why is that? Because in part, we elevate what we feel higher than what God says. Is that any different than Pharaoh? Uh, for others of us, it's not necessarily what we have done in the past, but it might be what was done to us. There are things that have happened in our life that we just can't get past. We can't understand how God could let these things happen in our lives. Now, for some people, they've experienced real traumas in life, and I would never want to minimize the real pain, the real horror, and the real difficulty of navigating traumas in our life. And uh, don't hear me say that any of these things that happen to you are good. I was talking to my, my, my DNA, guy, DNA group uh, this past week, and we were talking about some stuff that's happened to me a decade ago that I still struggle with because it was traumatic. But I actually want to even extend trauma beyond just catastrophic events that happened. And I wanna push it out to things in our life that we really didn't get that we should have gotten or things that we did get that we should never have gotten. And in many ways, these are traumatic things which have formed us. And when I say things that we should have gotten, I mean, so many people grew up in households where one or both of their parents just never told them that they loved them. 
that for their entire lives, they've longed to hear their parents just express joy and happiness in them, not for achieving something amazing, but just for being them. And they never got it. And that is something that they struggle to navigate. Now, here's where I get mad when I think about this. And this is what might get you mad a little bit. Scripture says that God makes all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord and those who are the called according to his purpose. Romans 8 and 28. A lot of us, a lot of times I'll speak for myself personally. I'll think to myself, God, how in the world can you turn that situation to be good? And in my brain, my feelings are elevated above what God says. Very clear. God says all things, not some things, but all things. Now, these days, there's only about three channels I get usage in my house, ESPN, HGTV, and Food Network. And uh, Beat Bobby Flay is probably one of my favorite shows. And I I love that show. I love the first round of it where they just give these chefs ridiculous ingredients to put together to make it a masterpiece. And I I love Bobby Flay when he's putting together stuff in the kitchen. And a master chef could take a lot of stuff that I'm like, bro, I don't see how you're going to put that together. A master chef could take all that stuff and make it something wonderful. When scripture says that God takes all things and and can make them work together, not that by themselves they were good, but God can make all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord, it's a promise to us. And in this moment, when we are evaluating our past and what has happened to us, even that traumatic thing, I'm not saying it was good, but I'm saying if we're taking God at his word, we're allowing God to speak into our reality And some of the things in our past that we're stuck upon, maybe we can embrace them by faith that God is actually working in a situation. All right, pastor, maybe God can work through that. But what about my sins? Are you telling me that God can work through my sins? Are you telling me that God wanted sin? Of course not. But God can make all things work together of those who love the Lord and are the called according to his purpose. Paul says this in 1 Timothy 1 and 16. He says, But I received mercy for this reason, so that in me, the worst of them, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his what? His extraordinary patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. I once heard an old preacher tell a story that whenever a jeweler wants to show the the brilliance and the beauty of a diamond, they hold it against the velvet to show the contrast of the sparkling jewel with that midnight velvet. Now, sometimes what God wants to do to get glory is by showing grace to people who like really don't deserve it. And that is some of the way that God displays his grace and his power. Now, here's the thing about your past, whether it was something you did or something that someone did to you, if we're going to be people who follow him and trust him, we're gonna have to elevate what he says about us higher than what we think about any given situation. Now, that's just our past, but in our present, it's equally true. Here's a good question to ask yourself. What am I I bitter about? Now, let's take off the religious uh, niceties for a little bit. Like, what are you really bitter about? Bitterness, in so many different ways, uh, are the moments where we believe that God just kind of got it wrong. And if we're honest, we're resentful of the life that we have in front of us, the things that We're struggling through right now that we don't have that we really wish we had. And we're just we're bitter about it. Now, one of these days, I'll tell the story in full. It's it's not a good time to tell the story now. 
But this past week, I was really wrestling with uh, some stuff that's going on in, in, in life and my family. And it just doesn't feel fair. Like, I don't know if you ever felt like, God, the hits just keep coming. Bro, spread it around. Give it to some other people. Like, why, why, is, why are they continually coming my way? And talking to so many different people who've gotten passed over for the job over and over again, gotten passed over for relationships over and over again, whatever it is, if we're honest with ourselves, there is something inside of us that makes us feel like, God, why me? Why are you allowing this to happen in our life? And I think it's because... We're believing that God got it wrong. And if we were on the throne, we would do things differently. What is that saying? What is that? What's happening in our hearts? We are believing. We are believing that what we feel about our given situation is better than what God is doing. Now, here's the truth that we see in scripture in Psalm 147 and five. It says, great is our Lord and abundant in his strength. His understanding is infinite. And a lot of times in my moments, I'm saying, God, yes, I know it says that your understanding is infinite, but it doesn't seem infinite to me. We are always tempted in these moments to be a little bit like Pharaoh. And we all have a little bit of Pharaoh in us where we elevate what we feel over what God says. And then it's our future. To all my warriors, I am your leader. I am your captain. Uh, I have a PhD in worrying about almost everything. Uh, and so much of worrying is believing or being fearful that God will get it wrong in the future. So a good question to ask ourselves is, what am I anxious about? Now, if I were to answer those questions, what am I, what am I anxious about? Uh, we would not have enough time here to, to fill in all of those blanks. That's what my therapy session is for twice a month. Um, but we worry because we think that God is going to get it wrong in the future. But here's what Jesus tells us about worry. He says, therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body or what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. Here's the question that Jesus asks. Aren't you more valuable than they are? The challenge in our moments of worry is to trust what God says about us more than what we feel about any given situation that happened or may happen in the future. And like Pharaoh, a lot of times, we don't want to admit it, a lot of us are saying, why should I trust in this God and what he is saying over what I'm feeling? Now, if we look at our past, our present, and our future, I think we can come to the point where we can all readily admit that there are plenty of things that consistently make us question, who is this God that I should trust what you're saying over what I am feeling. Now, God and his grace has something for us to learn from Pharaoh today. Now, I mentioned earlier that the, the plagues were a response to Pharaoh's question, who is the Lord that I should obey him? And if you read through the Bible too quickly, uh, you'll miss out on a lot of really, really good stuff. And uh, in the Bible, how to read the Bible class a couple of uh, days ago, or it should be on our YouTube channel now, uh, one thing that I mentioned is that whenever you read the Bible, the first and most important question you should ever seek to answer is what does this passage of scripture teach me about God? And here's what the plagues teach us about God. The plagues were not a random set of occurrences as a modern reader might insinuate, but rather the plagues were targeted disruptions against the gods that the Pharaoh was trusting in. I want to say that again. They were not random occurrences, 
but rather they were targeted disruptions against the gods that Pharaoh was trusting in. Now, we don't have time today to get through all 10, um, but we're going to look through the first one today in, in Exodus 7. And man, sometimes I wish I can read things like James Earl Jones and give you all the full dramatic effect of what's going on, but uh, you'll have to settle for my voice. It's Exodus 7 and 19, it says, So the Lord says to Moses, Tell Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their, over their rivers, canals, ponds, and their water reservoirs, and they will become blood. There will be blood throughout the land of Egypt, even in wooden and stone containers. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded in the sight of Pharaoh and his officials. He raised the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile was turned to blood. The fish in the Nile died, and the river smelled so bad, the Egyptians could not drink water from it. There was blood throughout the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same thing by their occult practices. So Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not listen to them. As the Lord had said, Pharaoh turned around, went into his palace, and didn't even take this to heart. All the Egyptians dug around the Nile for water to drink, because they could not drink the water from the river. Seven days passed after the Lord struck the Nile. Now the Nile River was more than just a, a place to go and sit in front of. It's not like just sitting in front of the Hudson on a nice day for um, a nice sunset. Uh, the Nile was the, was the center of economic vitality for Egypt. It was a major thoroughfare. It was a major river. It was a major part of the agriculture and their world. And the Egyptians had a number of gods that they would pray to that protected, nurtured, and kept the Nile running. And all of their power in Egypt was caught up in the Nile. Now, the primary god of the Nile was a god named Happy. Now, Happy was there to provide fullness of life, and they sacrificed to Happy, and they came to Happy and provided Happy with praises and with sacrifices. Now, what was God doing in this first plague? He was showing Pharaoh that the God happy could not be relied upon to provide for, for Egypt. He was exposing the idol for what it is. Now, Bible scholars watching this, uh, I need y'all to allow me two minutes to have a little bit of creative license because I know the original text, when it's written in the Hebrew and the Greek and Aramaic, doesn't specifically say this, but I want to take a little bit of creative license and say this, that some of us have learned this lesson personally for ourselves, that it's not the Greek God happy, but it's our pursuit of being happy. It's happiness has been our God. And happiness has been the functional thing that we have pursued with all of our might. Happiness has been the thing that we have lamented when it didn't go as to plan. And in so many ways, happiness and pursuing happiness, more than pursuing meaning and purpose and passion and devotion to Jesus, has been the thing that has controlled your life. Uh, you know what? I don't feel like going to a community group or DNA group because I'd rather go out with friends. It's made our commitments flimsy and it's made our relationship with God and with other people something that's not worth having in so many different ways. But in difficult moments, when we've seen happiness erode from under our feet, in so many ways, what was God doing? He was showing us that happiness could not be the thing that we can rely on. One theologian said it like this, 
Nothing teaches us about the preciousness of the creator as much as when we learn the emptiness of everything else. Now, on the other side of that, sometimes God doesn't destroy our idols by destroying it up front. Sometimes God destroys our idols by giving us everything we thought would make us happy. And in the end, we look at it and we're still not fulfilled. We're still not feeling a sense of contentment in our lives. Why is that? Because none of these things can ever satisfy us. For you, I don't know if it's financial security. I don't know if it's a relationship. I don't know what it is that you're thinking will make you happy. But here's what we see about God in this first plague. Sometimes, painfully, God will expose in us the places in us where we have believed in false idols and trusted in other things. And when God exposes these things in our lives, we have a number of options. We can be like Pharaoh and we can harden our hearts or we can accept the painful truth that God is inviting us into because sometimes that painful truth is not there to harm us, it's to heal us. There's a story about a young man named Ishmael Bea. And when Ishmael Bea grew up in Sierra Leone, he was unfortunately turned into a child soldier and did some pretty horrific things. He cataloged this and so many other things in his wonderful book, A Long Way Gone. In one of the excerpts from the book, he talks about finally escaping from captivity and a long walk towards freedom. And when he arrived at the place that he would find his freedom, the people came to help him and they saw his feet bloody with open wounds from multiple days journey with no shoes on. And they told him to put his feet in the ocean. Now Ishmael knew how much pain it would be because salt water plus open wounds equals a whole lot of pain. But this pain wasn't to harm him. It was to cleanse his wounds. We should never confuse the pain of harm with the pain of cleansing. And sometimes in our life, what feels really painful, like the deterioration of things that we were relying on, sometimes it's, it's meant to show us that in some ways we were relying on something that we should have never been relying on. For me, so many times it's been career success. And I believed that by reaching a certain point in life in, in my career, life would finally start to make sense. And I've leaned on it. And I've also come crumbling down in anxiety and frustration and just disappointment in doing that. And God in his grace and his mercy allows us to experience the deterioration of all things that are not him because nothing else truly can sustain us. Now, instead of hardening our hearts like Pharaoh did, I want us to do the opposite. And by God's grace to us, he gives us the Holy Spirit that tells us, in the day you hear my voice, harden not your heart. Now, I think the antidote to a hardened heart is prayer. Philip Yancey, one of my favorite theologians, says that prayer is the declaration of dependence on God. And so today I wanna to end us with prayer. Gracious God, our sins are too heavy to carry, too real to hide, and too deep to undo. Forgive what our lips tremble to name, what our hearts can no longer bear. Set us free from a past that we cannot change. Open us to a future in which we can be changed and grant us the grace to grow more and more in your likeness and image. Lord, you are compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. You have not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are above the earth, so great is your loving kindness toward all who fear him. 
As far as the east is from the west, so far have you removed our sins from us. Amen.